thank you for joining us. I know there are many who are still joining and also many who are watching um, uh, remotely beyond the Zoom. Um, and so uh, we thank you for joining us for a very uh, interesting session. Salamanic justice is dual motherhood, a halachic possibility. Very, uh, very, very interesting topic. And um, we're going to learn from Rabbi Yisuskar Katz, who received his ordination in 1986 from Rabbi Yisuskar Roth, Diane of the Rabbi Katz studied in Brisk and in Yeshivat Beit Yosef in Nevada for only 10 years. Graduate of the Hashar program for Jewish educators. Rabbi Katz was taught at the Mayanot Yeshiva High School for Girls and SAR High School. He's the chair of the Talmud Department of the YCT Rabbinical School, and uh, where I was very honored to, uh, to have studied closely with Rabbi Katz. Uh, during my my four years over there, this is a, a thinker who is uh, courageous and thoughtful, and nuanced um, and broad. And so uh, it's an honor and delight to introduce my uh, teacher, Rabbi Yisachar. Thank you for the wonderful introduction. Um, I'm going to make a request uh, for those of you who are on the shiur here. I understand that people have uh, privacy issues and uh, perhaps are busy with a lot of other things, but if you could put on your uh, video, it would make it a little bit easier. It's hard to talk to a lot of blank spots. So if it's in any way possible, I would very much appreciate it. Um, so, for the opportunity, thank you very much for the introduction. And most importantly, thank you for this opportunity. Uh, one of the, uh, one of the uh, many interesting outcomes of the pandemic is that uh, we can now be all over the world. Um, from our home, from our couch, uh, which I know in some ways the, the pandemic, of course, um, inhibits us and we can't travel. But on the other hand, I can be, you know, in Phoenix in the afternoon and in Israel um, in the evening and the next morning end up um, in, the former Soviet, in the Soviet Union, former Soviet Union. So there's something to be said. I believe that if Dr. Seuss was around today, he would have written an update to all the places he'll go on Zoom. Because, uh, you know, that's a whole other possibility. Uh, but having said that, um, really, Ashokawach, um, you know, for someone who, who, who teaches halacha like myself, um, I believe that, just broadly speaking, before I get to my specific topic, I believe that we actually are heading towards an incredible, incredible uh, revolution in halacha as a response to, to the virus. Um, for the last couple of months, actually, I've been really comparing uh, what's going on now vis-a-vis -vis the pandemic and halakha to orthodox halakhic feminism and, frankly, halakhic LGBTQ in the sense that, in the sense that when halakhic feminism came on the scene, right, when originally women came along and said, you know, we want an orthodoxy that's inclusive, an orthodoxy that's welcoming, Quite frankly, the system, halakha, was terrifying. It was threatening. It was scary. Uh, this is something new. This is something that has not been going on in the past. And any time when something so momentous and so monumental encounters halakha, then halakha feels threatened. Um, I think we're talking about um, roughly um, 15, 20, 30, 40 years hence, and we can say very well and very comfortably that halacha actually came out stronger, that it was a great experience for halacha to go through this tumultuous time, to experience this tremor. Um, and I think the same is starting to be true, although we're kind of only seeing the very um, early signs of that, the very early um, manifestation of that, but the LGBTQ community after insisting and pushing and fighting for such a long time is making inroads and halakha is responding. And I feel the same as with, uh, with the pandemic. Um, for the moment, it's posing a lot of challenges, whether it's minor challenges um, in terms of Zoom and halakha, um, the, can you daven in a Zoom minion, um, can you say Kaddish in a Zoom minion, et cetera, et cetera, to large medical questions. and um, issues of medicine. And quite frankly, as someone who is deeply, deeply passionate of halakha and committed to halakha, um, I would lie if I said that I was nervous. You know, I hope, I hope that halakha and, and, and so to speak, the pandemic figures out a way to make it work. But if past um, is any evidence, if past history is any um, guide, 
I think that at the end of the day, halacha is actually going to come out much stronger and much, uh, much richer. Um, I've seen it already in the beginning. I mean, uh, I always love to quote um, a, 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 a quote from the Talmud in, in, in the Darim, and it's a pretty, a pretty audacious quote. Uh, but then again, there's quite a few audacious quotes in the Talmud. But the rabbis have the line which says, I'll, I'll read in the Hebrew and then I'll translate, um, Ilamale nitna Torah. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Ilamale chatu Yisrael be'egel, lo nitna lahem ela chamisheichim shei Torah v'sefer Yeshua bilavad. If it wasn't for the fact that the Jews worshipped the golden calf, we would have had a very poor and sparse Torah of the five books of Moses, Yehoshua, we enter Israel, and it's over. And they, so to speak, and I'm paraphrasing only slightly, so to speak, what the rabbis are saying is, thank God for the Egal, thank God for the golden calf, right? Which is a pretty kind of wild statement to say, thank God that the Jews worship the golden calf. But what they're teaching us is that, you know, tragedy, um, and challenge, and, um, and um, obstacles can be um, interpreted as a positive. And I think the same is going to be true uh, for us now during the pandemic. I think in the end run, when all is said and done, we will actually see that um, halakha and halakhic discourse uh, has become significantly richer. Um, I, uh, I, uh, I'm a part of a, uh, part of a um, uh, WhatsApp group that's related to the uh, Hebrew Library. Universita Israel, and the only thing that happens in that WhatsApp group is that there are constant updates of new books uh, acquired by the library. And the amount of Torah that has been produced related to coronavirus is already incredible. I mean, I would say on average, once every 48 to 72 hours, another book, another safer related to coronavirus uh, is published. So, well, of course, obviously, uh, this is a challenging time, and this is a time we are uh, a lot of tragedy. We're talking about, you know, 4 million people have been infected worldwide. Uh, in the United States, 400, uh, 200, and more than 220,000 people have lost their lives, which is incredibly tragic. But there's also the piece that we need to kind of not lose track, but this is how um, a, a Community grows. Uh, community grows through challenges, through obstacle, uh, through adversity. And this is one of those really serious adverse moments. What I want to do today is I want to share with you what I would most, most probably describe my most radical idea. And for those of you who know me, that is quite um, wild. Um, I could say a lot of radical things. So for me to call uh, what I'm going to share with you today the most radical, uh, then it is indeed uh, the most radical. But the flip side of the most radical is also that few of my arguments that I've made over the years, whether it's in the context of Orthodox feminism, for those of you who know my writings, or in the context of um, Orthodox and the queer community, um, Few times have I been convinced about my argument, as I am about the argument that I want to share with you today. And what I want to kind of explore with you is that the question of parenthood. What determines parenthood? Now, if you're a Torah scholar, if you're someone who, you know, um, is guided by halacha by a question like this one, um, you're setting yourself up for trouble. Because... The tradition, is, this is not a question that the tradition asked, because if it, for 200 years ago, 300 years ago, if you ever asked a halachic scholar, a Torah scholar, what makes someone a parent, they would laugh at you. They would say, what do you mean what makes a parent? Being a parent makes someone a parent, right? They, didn't fa they couldn't fathom, they couldn't imagine even the possibility of perhaps other alternative sources for parenthood. And that makes it very, very hard um, for someone today who is encountering these amazing, amazing childbearing technologies to really have a handy answer ready um, quickly because there's no place that anybody can point to you explicitly and tell you, look, that source will give you an answer. That source addresses the question. So that's challenge number one. The other challenge, and I, and, and I want to kind of um, introduce that 
vis-a-vis our conversation, but also in terms of, um, in general, when such a thing happens in halacha. When halacha encounters a new phenomenon, we need to be generous. We need to be kind to the halacha and also to the people in charge of chaperoning the halacha. It is often a frightening experience. If you're, I'll take a very easy example of technology and halacha. Imagine yourself being a 19th century rabbi in Europe and you're starting to hear, or early 20th century rabbi in Europe, and you're starting to hear something about electricity, technology, oh, that can do different things. It seems frightening. It seems scary. You don't know what it's going to do to the halachic system. You know, the classic example, which is a pretty recent modern example, is Ramosha Feinstein, one of the most prominent uh, American post-kim, who was in general very lenient, is extremely stringent when it comes to a timer. He thinks that using a timer on Shabbat, you know, when you set up your, 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 your appliances before Shabbat on a timer, is perhaps biblically prohibited, and if not biblically prohibited, at least rabbinically prohibited. And there is no doubt that, that underneath the surface, one can sense an innate paralysis, an innate fear of, you know, if we can set um, our appliances on timers, then goodbye Shabbos, you know. Um, and the same is also happening when it comes to the question of parenthood, right? Um, if you're a classical traditional posek, this is incredibly frightening to you. You mean to tell me that established criteria for what constitutes a father and a mother is now up for grabs? This looks very scary for me. And who knows where this is going to go? And who knows where this is going to end up? Um, and, 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 and I think that that generosity, right, that, that generosity of spirit is a, is a prerequisite for being able to engage in the conversation in a way that brings a sensitivity, qua sensitivity, I mean, a, just these are people who are trying hard and even when they, you know, make mistakes, um, the mistakes come from a very good place. Um, but it also allows us to recognize a layer that perhaps is not obvious on the surface. Uh, before I plunge into the intricacies of our conversation, I'll give you another example of something that I'm working on uh, extensively, and I hope to write it up uh, pretty soon, is the question of the cheresh, the halachic cheresh, right? Cheresh is someone who is speaking and hearing impaired. They can hear and they can't speak. Now, from the kind of traditional halachic perspective. In other words, if you go based on the Talmud, based on the uh, early codes, the cheresh is not a member of the halachic community. They're excluded uh, from the halachic community for good reason, because they are unable to communicate with their surrounding. And if they're unable to communicate with their surrounding, they are unable to be educated. If they're unable to be educated, they don't have the mental acuity, right? The mental um, sophistication in order to be included as a member of the Jewish community. Well, we know, I'm sorry, as a member of the halachic community, I'm sorry. Well, we know that that's no longer true today, right? Being, hearing, and speaking impaired does not inhibit a person's ability to communicate and to learn and to be sophisticated because we've developed alternative languages. We've developed sign language. We've developed lip reading. We've developed, you know, hearing aids, cochlear implants. We've developed mechanism that allows us to circumvent the obstacle that the rabbis were facing. Now, I didn't bring the sources for you today. I wish I did, actually. If you look at the earliest rabbinic halachic texts who were asked what to do with the law about a hearing and speaking impaired person vis-a-vis halacha, given that the reality has changed, it's hard not to sense a serious theological spiritual paralysis. If you're a rabbi who finds out that, oh, when halacha said X, it turns out that it could be very easily circumvented. A technology can come 
Marang and tell you, oh, you thought that speaking and hearing impaired person, the Kheresh, cannot communicate? They could. Well, okay, then if I can't trust the rabbis on X, why can't I trust the rabbis on Z? Um, and a close reader of the texts, the rabbinic texts, will notice that very, very, very strongly. Um, you know, there's always a mix almost of two parallel conversations going on. On the, one, on the one level, the rabbi is discussing the pure legal questions. Is it indeed true that sign language can constitute a language? Is it indeed true that, um, that uh, lip reading can be considered, um, you know, um, hearing, et cetera, et cetera? But an undercurrent is also, well, if that's the case, what is left of the halachic system? So, it's true for almost any modern technology, whether it's technology like, you know, uh, addressing people hearing are hearing impaired, whether it's technology qua technology, whether it's philosophical changes, you know, feminism, queer, et cetera, et cetera. And the same thing is when it comes to our question, the question of parenthood. Um, it's scary. And the paralysis is an undercurrent of the conversation. So that's kind of by way of introducing and contextualizing the specific conversation that I want to have with you today. So I am specifically interested in the question of parenthood as regards surrogacy. When it comes to the question, um, yeah, so I see questions in the chat. I will leave 10 minutes at the end so that I can uh, respond directly uh, to the questions uh, in the chat. I appreciate those. Um, so I'm specifically interested in the question of parenthood as regards surrogacy, right? So what surrogacy means basically is there is a, so to speak, an overmother, right? The woman whose egg is, has been infertilized, fertilized, and then there is a gestation mother, right? There is a woman in whose womb the egg, the ovum was implanted, and she is the one who carries the baby for nine months and then eventually gives birth to a baby that comes about through a foreign ovum, through a foreign egg. So there's an interesting kind of process here, right? Uh, if we look at the baby as a whole that comes out after the nine months, there are two partners there are two people who have brought about this birth. And if motherhood is creation, if motherhood is bringing about a life into this world, well, here two people contributed. Although, although their contribution was not parallel, meaning they didn't both contribute the same thing. They contributed different things, right? Like I said, the, 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 my, the, the, whatever comes along with the mother's contribution of the ovum, that's the ovum mother's contribution to the child. And whatever happens in the kind of nine months of gestation and the birth itself, perhaps, if that contributes something to the, to the actual child, that's another woman's contribution. And that raises the question of who is the mother? But in order to address this question, in order to address this question, it's important to kind of know a little bit the history of halachic parenthood, right? Um, what's the sequence of this conversation? And there was a sequence. There is a sequence. Because addressing infertility allows for two possibilities. There is the question of egg donation, right? Some, if, if in a case of where a woman does not have the kind of ova that can produce children, there can be an outside person, an outside person who can contribute to the uh, person's ovum. So it's an outside egg that's implanted in, the, in a woman's uh, womb, and then she gives birth to the baby. So that was the first question that was addressed in halacha. What happens with a child that's born to a Jewish mother from an egg donor? Someone else contributed their ovum, someone over their egg, and now the woman who carried that child gives birth. And that's important to keep in mind. Now, I am not arguing for bias. 
I do believe that there is certainly a significant level of objectivity when rabbis explore questions. Rabbis are good people. I'm one of them and not bad people. Uh, and there is no doubt an effort to be as objective as possible. But at the end of the day, they're not living in a vacuum. They're not living in a bubble. They know what it is that they are looking for. They know what it is that they're asking. So in the case that, we, that I mentioned, where a mother who comes to the rabbi says, Rabbi, I couldn't have children. My, my ova was not um, developed sufficiently. I got a egg donor to contribute their ova, their um, egg, and now I am carrying that child. Who is the mother? The hope was, right, the hope was that the outcome will be indeed that the gestation mother, the mother who carried the egg and gave birth to the egg, is indeed the mother. So that was the orientation. So, as I said before, there is no explicit text that says outright, oh, motherhood is X or Y. Instead, instead, the rabbis found indirect texts, indirect texts, which seem to suggest one way or the other. So, for example, and I, I apologize in advance for the perhaps slight discomfort because we're talking about parents, about children, about motherhood and fatherhood, and yet the way to address that will take us into plants and other things. But, you know, unfortunately, there's a reality. The reality is that we have to go to other venues in order to help us figure out this one. So I would argue that one of the most prominent texts in the question of egg donation is the following. Uh, if you can see my screen, um, I'll read it in the English. Uh, it's from Tractate Sota 43b. Rabbi Avahu said, with regards to a young tree that was engrafted with an old tree, right? So you have a young tree that's, I don't know, two years old, right? So we all know that a new tree has limitations. For the first three years, you cannot use the harvest. The first three years is orla, and you're not allowed to use it. So the question is, what happens if you take a branch from a new um, sapling, you know, from a new tree, and you graft it out onto a tree that's 50 years old? That new branch now produces produce. There are fruits that grow out of that new branch. How do we teach the fruit, the produce, that comes out of that baby branch that has been implanted into a senior tree, right? The young one, the Gemara says, is negated by the old one, and the law of Orla does not apply to it. Now, it's not a perfect analogy. It's not a perfect comparison, like I said, and we're talking about people, and we're not talking about trees, but that's the best we got. And at least in this context, it seems that the foreign entity that has been implanted into a host is subsumed, the identity of the foreign entity is subsumed into the identity of the new host. Ergo, the gestation mother would be the proper mother. So that was one of the my most exciting proofs that have been used in the conversation of egg donation. And the reason why it's exciting, and that will bring me to the other proof, is because at least this text has the advantage of being in the context of Jewish law. It's discussed in the context of halakha. The next proof comes up in a non-legal context. And that, by definition, raises a tremendous amount of jurisprudential questions in the sense, do non-halachic texts have any legal authority whatsoever? Big question, big debates. Um, you know, unfortunately, coming back to what I said today, because modern science has raised halachic questions that halacha never addressed, we actually are in a point in halachic history where we no longer have the luxury of limiting ourselves to a halachic text. Sometimes we have to actually rely on non-halachic text because that's the only place where we will find some guidance on this question. So the next text 
that is brought to bear is a fascinating text, really an incredible, incredibly interesting text. This is from Brachot 68, right? Leah and Rachel, right? Leah and Rachel, the two wives of Jacob. We know the, the tension there, right? Leah is having children, one after another, after another, after another, after another, and Rachel grapples with infertility. Finally, after so many years, Rachel becomes pregnant. Unfortunately, a big tragedy happens. I'm being facetious, of course. What's the big tragedy? She's pregnant with a girl, right? And from a very gendered Caribbean context, Rachel is disappointed. If she's going to have a one and only child, then it's going to be a girl. Ay, ay, ay. But again, putting the, the kidding aside, from the Midrashic rabbinic perspective, where it's a kind of a male-dominated world, that is a letdown. That is a disappointment for Rachel. As it happens, her sister also is pregnant at that very same time, and she's pregnant with a boy. After Leah passed judgment on herself, 12 tribes are destined to descend from Jacob. Six came from me and four from the mid servants. That is 10. And if this fetus is male, my sister Rachel will not be even the equivalent of one of the maid servants, right? This is when she's pregnant with her second child. Um, Rachel's second child is a girl. Immediately, the fetus was transformed into a daughter as it is stated, and she called her name Dina. The Targum Yonatan ben Uziel, it's a late Targum, I'm not gonna get into the history, says it even more explicitly. Their fetuses were exchanged. Yosef, this is all metaphysical and miraculous and supernatural, but Yosef was taken miraculously out of Leah's womb and put into Rachel's womb. This is the closest we will get to over-donation, right? Over, Leia has a male over, right? Leia has a male egg. That male egg is transferred into Rachel's womb, and now Rachel is the mother of Benjamin. So here we have another example, another text, that seems to explicitly suggest explicitly suggest that from a halachic perspective, and granted, as I mentioned before, this is a non-halachic text. This is not a text that discusses halacha explicitly, but as I said, unfortunately, we no longer have that luxury. Uh, if we're going to wait around for halachic texts to address this issue, we're not going to find them because there aren't that many. But clearly, it seems that for this Gemara and this Midrash, the gestation mother is considered the halachic mother. And that was kind of, so to speak, good news for the rabbis who were discussing um, the question of the halachic status of a child born through egg donation. The rabbi's answer was, look, we had the case of the grafting, and now we have the case of Rachel and Leah. And in both cases, it seems pretty clear that the gestation mom is the mother. Um, there's another text. This is not such a perfect text, but it's also still a little bit helpful. Um, this comes from Megillat Esther, right? Um, in Megillat Esther, it says that um, Esther was an orphan. Her father and mother died. Her father and her mother died. The rabbis say they didn't die at the same time. The father died during, during inception and the mother died when she gave birth, which Rashi says, why? Because that's only when a mom acquires the title mother. The person that give, when you give birth to a child, that's when you're called mother. So if the Megillah calls the woman who gave birth to her mother, it must be that she survived the childbirth and died after Esther was born. Once again, proof that, um, that as far as Allah is concerned, gestation determines motherhood. So this is the scene, so to speak, right? This is the context in which our conversation of surrogacy comes up. And it's important to remember because they are gonna be in dialogue. And now, all of a sudden, 
we find out that there's another way of dealing with infertility. Now, just to quickly mention uh, one example of many, the history of surrogacy. The history of surrogacy is not very old in halakha. In 1920, we find the first example where something similar to surrogacy comes up. Obviously, this is not a conversation about surrogacy. This is 1920s Europe. I don't think that anybody, at least in the halakhi community, perhaps in the general community, did not think about uh, surrogacy. But here's an interesting question. And it's always interesting to read the questions. These are people who live in small shtetls. They're not, you know, highly sophisticated when it comes to science and technology. They hear some, you know, hearsay. When I always read these chuvot, I always have the, the image of... Um, Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, I don't know if you remember the character. It was a sophisticated character who reads the newspapers, right? And uh, there's a scene there. He's in the kind of town square, and he has this kind of very sophisticated look with the round glasses, and he tells people all the updates, and they get so enamored, the outside world, the interesting big kind of world, and they kind of pick up snippets. They don't have full understanding. So here's the story. I'm reading from where I they can follow with me. You asked me about the new medical innovation whereby they, whereby they transplant the womb of a woman into the body of another woman who's having difficulty conceiving. You were wondering halakhically who is the mother of a child who was conceived as a result of this procedure? The donor of the womb or the recipient, right? So it's not exactly the case that we're talking about where there's a donor of ova into another person's womb. He's talking about some kind of, you know, um, um, far-fetched technology where there is a womb transplantation. And he has such a hard time believing that that's possible, and he says, it says as much, going back to what I said earlier, there's a little bit of a terror um, to its science that circumvents halakha, and he writes them, I will respond out of deference to you, even though I find it hard to believe that such a thing is possible. Nevertheless, I'll entertain your hypothetical, right? In the event that they do develop the technology that will allow them to do such a procedure, I will say the following. So first he says, such a procedure is not allowed. Since it makes the donor sterile, she will no longer be able to conceive. During, doing that will be a negation of the commandment, be fruitful and multiply. I'll bracket it. I'll come back, uh, come back to this if I have time. But this is the important piece. In the event that they go through with the procedure, it is my opinion that the recipient is the halachic mother of the subsequently born child. So he's talking about a new technology, right? He's not talking about egg donation. He's talking about the womb from one person transferred into another person. But in line of what we have seen, he follows and assumes that it is the gestation mother that determines parenthood. And now, halakha has to deal with a more sophisticated technology, surrogacy. So once again, one example of many contemporary poskim, this is uh, the Shevet Halevi, of Shmuel Wozner. He lived in B'nai Barak and passed away, away a couple of years ago. I, know him, I knew him. Um, the initial reaction to such inventions is adamant and vehement opposition. I humbly submit that I never permitted implanting the ovum of a woman into the womb of another person where the child comes about because of the condition of a foreign force. That is not what God meant when he commanded us to be fruitful and multiply, and it doesn't matter if the ovum mother is Jewish or non-Jewish, he is vehemently opposed to surrogacy. And he is, you know, reflective of one of many uh, postcom. He's not the only one. Uh, it's quite common, at least initially, the reaction to surrogacy is, um, is um, oppositional. People are opposed. But, as we all know, um, this is something that I was made aware when I wrote one of my first um, chuvot. Uh, one of my first responses was on the question of um, breastfeeding in shul. Um, I was a rabbi in a shul with uh, a young community. A lot of young people were members, and uh, they were men and women who were starting families. They were having children, and they wanted to know whether if a mom comes with a little baby to shul, can, can she um, nurse the kid in shul? And, and once again, it was, uh, it was a, uh, it was a uh, hard case because, as I said before, 
if a rabbi 200, 300 years ago was asked that question, you know what his response would be. Why does the mommy, mommy have to come to shul? Why can't she stay home? What's the problem? Why would she even be there at all? But that's no longer our reality. Our reality is mothers and fathers want to come to shul and they need to figure out what to do with the baby in shul. So that was my impetus to write a tshuva. I wrote uh, extensively, 22 pages. If anybody's interested, I'm happy to forward you the tshuva. Um, and my conclusion is that it is okay for various reasons, which I'm not gonna get into right now. But one of the strongest and most sophisticated critiques was, Rabbi Katz, nobody cares. And this woman meant it very genuinely and very kindly. And her point was that rabbis have a certain haughtiness of thinking the halacha happens top down. The rabbis did give the psak and then people follow where in fact she argues, she argued halacha happens from the bottom up. Halacha happens, the community starts to doing things in response to their modern realities. And then the rabbis have to come along and figure out how do we navigate that in a way that's authentic, that's with integrity, that's sensitive, and that's responsive. Tall order, but those are the challenges. But again, the question does not go top down. She was kind of making fun of me in a very sweet way. I mean, we're friends and I know her. Uh, and she said to me, no woman was sitting around at home with a little baby and saying, I can't wait for my cats to ride the shoe, and I'm not going to go to shul. They want to go to shul. They want to be part of the Jewish religious community. And then we'll figure out how to do it in a way that's appropriate. The same has happened with the question of surrogacy and infertility. Of course, the initial reaction, the halachic reaction is oppositional, rightfully so. Halacha does require caution. We shouldn't just flippantly kind of go along with any fad and any trend. There requires caution as an element of sincerity, commitment and integrity and integrity to the process. But the reality is that the world progresses and the world moves around. And all of a sudden, the rabbis, the, the poskim, found themselves with a reality in which certain members in the halachic community are resorting to surrogacy. Now, this poses a big problem. Because up until now, the good psak, I'm sad that so many of you are not on video, don't see me in my quotation marks. The good psak is to argue that the gestation mother is the real mom, because that was the helpful psak in the cases of egg donation. In the cases of egg donation, where a Jewish woman had a foreign ova, foreign ovum implanted into her body, in order for that child to be considered Jewish, the, out, the preferred outcome would be, well, it doesn't matter who the egg donor is, it's all about the gestation mother. But then now we're finding ourselves in a case of surrogacy, and all of a sudden that's bad for the Jews, so to speak. If that's true that it's about the gestation mother, so then a woman who can't carry a baby, a woman who cannot give birth, who instead needs to ask another person to do that and will put aside the legalities and the ethics of surrogacy, that's a separate conversation which needs to be had, but I'm bracking that for the moment. But if we follow the halachic notion that gestation motherhood determines motherhood, then women for whom the challenge is not to produce ova, but instead the challenge is to carry a child through pregnancy, what are they going to do? But, as we already know, it's always wrong to talk about the rabbinic tradition in uniform. There is rarely uniformity in the Allahic tradition. The Allahic tradition is made up of texts that kind of suggest sometimes opposing views, sometimes complementary views. And the challenge really is to figure out how to navigate those competing texts, how to navigate those competing opinions. So don't expect an avalanche of texts to argue the opposite. There isn't, but there are hints, one or two, I'm gonna share actually with you just one, that perhaps it's not the gestation mom that is the halachic mother, 
it's instead the mother that contributes to the ovo. And again, I'm warning you because I don't want you to be disappointed and let down. This is not gonna be a blowout text. This is not gonna be a home run um, score, but perhaps a text that can perhaps argue that for the rabbis, it's about the ovum, not about the gestation. And that's this very famous text for those of you who, who study texts about childbirth and all that in Masachat Nida. And let me read it for you. Um, and yeah. The sages thought there are three partners in the creation of a person. The holy young, God. God is a, is a participant, a partner in the creation of people, blessed be he, and the child's father, his, I mean, be a girl too, but you had the child's father and the child's mother. And now the rabbis are becoming very, um, so to speak, graphic. What is the father's contribution and what is the mother's contribution and so on. His father admits the white seed from which the following body parts are formed. The bones, the sinews, the nails, the brain that is in its head and the white of the eye. His mother admits red seed, obviously this is kind of the ovum, from which are formed the skin, the flesh, the hair, and the black of the eye. And then they go on saying about the, 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 the God's contribution. But the point being that for the rabbis in this context, motherhood is determined on what the mom contributes because of her ova. The ova is what assigns to her the title mother. And because of that, that's what determines motherhood. There's one other text um, in, in Tractate Yevamud, which I did not share with you, uh, simply because it is incredibly um, 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 convoluted and it's hard to tease out. But there is one more explicit text in Tractate Yevamud, which also seems to suggest that it's not the gestation mother. Instead, it is the ovum mother. And there's also, you know, little here and there, teeny little text. But, you know, when all is said and done, uh, is we're not talking about a, you know, overwhelming amount of text. So what is a POSIC to do? What is a rabbi left to do at this point in time? Up until recently, it was kind of, so to speak, and I'm not saying this facetiously and irreverentially, so to speak, good for the Jews to argue that the gestation mother is the real mother. That way, women who can't conceive have a solution. They get someone else's egg and they carry the baby and they're the mother. But now we're facing the opposite. Now we want to figure out whether the over contribution is sufficient to make you the, the mother. And as I said, we have text in this way and that way. So what do we do? How do we reconcile these competing texts, right? It is really a Salmanic case, way more than the actual Salmanic case, right? This kind of really, I think as I, I was looking for a cartoon because I like sometimes to include cartoons in my sources. And it, I found this like, this is not a cartoon. This is just a drawing of the reality, right? I have no idea who is the real mom. The judge says very explicitly. Uh, there's certain biases in the drawings if you look at it, right? Uh, one woman comes across as she-she and wealthy and uh, well-dressed and so on and so forth. And the other one is described a little bit more poor and that obviously speaks to the dynamics of surrogacy, which is another conversation. But what do we do? What is a rabbi supposed to do? And this is where I wanna kind of offer my suggestion. And I feel very strongly about it. I think it's inescapable to say that indeed both are the mothers. This is indeed a child who came about by the contribution of these two women, each of whom contributed something that the other woman couldn't do for various medical obstacles. And in a natural case, one woman has the abilities to do both and therefore she is the exclusive mother. But in a case where in order to bring about the birth of a child, we required two people to play a role in the birth of this child, then both are the parents. 
And it seems to me almost like the, the, the borderline ethical thing to say. Like, how could we, I mean, I'm going to say right person in the picture and long, uh, left person in the picture. How can you preference the woman on the right over the woman on the left or vice versa? They both indeed have done what makes someone a mother. The question is, though, is that a crazy idea to which my answer is absolutely no. Again, I wanted to spare you today with an avalanche of sources, but I'll share with you one. But there actually are about five or six textual sources that considers multiple of parents. Now, I have to kind of qualify that. You will not find any text that talks about multiple mothers. Because again, that was a technology that was not available to them. They, however, had a faulty science, the rabbis, which believed that anybody who has sex with a pregnant woman, at least early on, contributes to the development of the child. No matter how many people sleep with a woman at, at, the, at the initial stages, you know, when she is you know, able to become pregnant, all of their semen, all of their seed, so to speak, contributes to the birth of the child, which in turn makes them all fathers. You know, the most explicit example, which is always interesting because the rabbis have an orientation which says good people are very good and bad people are very bad, and they oftentimes will attribute horrible things to kind of minor bad characters in Tanakh. So Goliath is one of them, right? Goliath is a bad guy because he picks a fight with David. Um, so here's what they say about Goliath. Um, okay, uh, I'll start here. Rabbi Yonasan said, the world is related to the word bain, meaning between and means that he was born from among many. Goliath was not the child of a single father. Goliath had multiple fathers. He was the son. Are you ready for the number here? Because if we're going to go for the jugular, might as well kind of go all the way. He was the son of 100 fathers. And if we're already kind of, you know, bashing his mother, she also was guilty of bestiality and a dog. So he had 100 fathers plus a dog. He was the descendant of a dog plus 100 fathers. And Tosifo, the commentary, the medieval commentary on the page has explicitly it would seem that each of the hundred men who slept with Goliath's mother were his father she, since she was impregnated by all of them. Now, I can bracket the science. I don't care about the science. What I care about is that philosophically slash halachically, they had no problem entertaining the possibility of multiple parents. I mentioned there's a Yerushalmi in Yavamo that seems to suggest that. There is a Shla that suggests that. There's a Sefer Hasidim in the 12th century. My point is you find early medieval commentators who suggest that. You find um, early um, what's called Achronim commentators who suggest that. It is a pretty given that that is a possibility. In fact, I gave you really the cover page of a book called Minchat Chinuch. Minchat Chinuch is a uh, uh, mid-20th century uh, book, a uh, 19th century book, I'm sorry. And he is a funny book. Uh, he's a funny book. And what I mean by a funny book is that he's the go-to person for all the most convoluted scenarios. He had a knack for developing like, extremely convoluted scenarios. And it is a given to him that there are multiple scenarios in which case a person has two fathers. So I feel very strongly, I feel very strongly that for a legal, from a legal philosophical perspective, it's almost inescapable from arguing at this point in time of the halachic discourse about medical, of, 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 of childbirth technologies, it's inescapable from arguing that if we want to treat the texts we saw with integrity, right? On the one hand, there are texts that suggest that gestation creates motherhood. On the other hand, there's texts that suggest that over-contribution creates motherhood. That indeed, both are the parents. Now, what does that mean psychologically, emotionally, 
both for the two women and for the child is definitely something that we cannot ignore. Uh, it is not a simple question. Um, I will say in, in, for the, in the interest of honesty, that when I write or discuss a PSAC that will cause difficulty for people, I insist to first meet people who will be impacted by that. By that. I need to be able to look them in the eye and say, well, this is what my conclusion, um, this is what I think, how does that feel? I've spoken to parents who have become parents through surrogacy, and I wouldn't say that they jumped on the idea. You know, certain uh, women told me, of course I'm willing to consider the surrogate mom as an important part in my child's life, but that's different than saying the surrogate mother is sharing motherhood with me. And I'm very cognizant of that, right? Uh, that's something that we need to address. Same would go perhaps for the children, right? When these children grow up and they are told, you know, A and B are your moms, what does that mean? Uh, but like I said, I'm not oblivious to that. I'm not ignorant of that. And that is a big challenge. But at least for now, and I'm saying this as a suggestion, for now I'm not ready to kind of say that definitively, for now it seems to me hard to escape uh, the argument that this is a child that shares, uh, that has dual parents. So in the question of Solomon, uh, of Shlomo Melach, who is the parent, you don't have to cut up the baby. You actually just have to know that the baby has both. I see, I see there are some chats and I didn't have a chance to check if there are questions. I want to kind of say one more idea quickly and then uh, I'll open it for questions for until five o'clock. When I spoke to certain women who have had children to surrogacy, I spoke to a very prominent uh, woman rabbi in the, in the orbit in which I exist. Uh, for the moment, I'm not going to share her name because I have not gotten permission from her. And she made an interesting suggestion, which I later found uh, that has been made earlier by a, uh, a, conservative, a prominent conservative rabbi whose name I'm blanking on for the moment, and I apologize. She said that maybe because so much of parenthood involves a significant element of emotional and psychological attachment, would it be possible to suggest that perhaps parenthood is a volitional reality. Maybe in other words, what she was suggesting is, would it be possible to say that in a case where two women engage in this process, two women engage in this process and say, you know what, can we try to bring about a child together? I'll contribute to them. you're gonna carry the baby. Can we, it be left up to them to determine who will bring to bear to this scenario the emotional piece that would then assign to them, would then kind of, you know, uh, honor them with the title of parenthood. Now, the question was not a question of, does it make sense or is it logical, of course, but again, I operate in a very limited rubric, I'm a posake. The question is, can one find textual support for that notion. For the moment, for the moment, the closest I can think of where halacha considers subjectivity of parenthood is the case of adopted parents and adopted children. There is already a, um, a, a question, I'm, I'm gonna take questions in a second. There is already a literature uh, about, you know, the parenthood of adoptive parents, adoptive children. So that might be the first venue that one would go um, in terms of, in terms of um, whether parenthood is not exclusively contingent on the biology. Perhaps there are secondary concerns, but that's the only uh, place I found for the moment that would allow us to perhaps entertain the possibility of, um, of um, of um, perhaps parenthood being um, subjective and volitional. I didn't have a chance to read the questions. It's hard for me to focus um, on both. So I'm gonna open the floor for five minutes for questions. The last question I saw was, is this relevant for, for, for the status of Judaism? Yeah, that would be one. 
that would be one, right? I mean, if the, um, you know, the, the, the ovum mother is Jewish and the gestation mother is not Jewish, what do we do with that? So I have recently done the conversion of a child that was born through surrogacy. Another friend of mine said that they are waiting around. They think that the halakha on this, is, on this topic is still, you know, blurry. It's still open. There are no clear answers yet. And they would rather not go through the process of conversion. And they were advised by a very prominent rabbi in, uh, in, in, in the modern Orthodox orbit to wait with the conversion. Now, wait with the conversion in this case is the hope that the motherhood of the surrogate mother will be negated. I'm not comfortable kind of, you know, you know, angling to go in that direction. So, yeah, Jew, Jew, the status, the Jewish status is one of the questions. Uh, we have five minutes left, and I would be happy to open it if anybody has questions. Or if you wrote a question, um, 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 then please um, 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 answer me. Um, I saw someone wrote in private, um, mentioned a rabbi. So there is a there are two, three rabbis, actually, who consider this as a possibility. Rav Sternbuch is one of them. Rav Sternbuch is a prominent rabbi in Israel, a Haredi rabbi, who seriously considers the possibility of dual parenthood. And in the modern Orthodox um, context, Rabbi Bleich, a very prominent post in the modern Orthodox um, um, venue, who also considers the possibility, but both of them reject it. Rav Sternbuch writes about it extensively. I, um, I, uh, I'm going to give you the sources in a minute. But they somehow kind of run away from it almost. And when you read the sources, you almost feel you're this close why do you go away? Now we know why they go away because it is a hard kind of, um, you know, um, prom premise. Uh, but to me, it seems almost like inescapable. Um, any other questions? I, like I said, I haven't read the questions in the chats. Okay. Um, if there are no questions, then um, I guess I'm going to wrap it up. So just to wrap up and to summarize what, I, uh, what I've said, and then let me bring up one more time my source sheet. Um, oh, there's a new message. Let me quickly take a look. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. That's very kind. Um, what if one mother is Jewish and one mother is not? What religion is the child? Yeah, so that's a question, right? Um, okay, so let me just bring up the source sheet quickly and wrap up here. Um, so um, in the chat, in the chat, um, there is the first chat all the way on the top is a link to the source sheet also. And if you go down to the source sheet at the bottom, I have a link to my extensive conversation over this topic. It's a, um, um, let's see how many pages it is. Um, it's a seven-page uh, chuva on this topic in English. It's pretty accessible with a lot of more of these sources that I have not mentioned in there. So feel free to take a look and print it out. And um, like I said, um, it is pretty radical suggestion, uh, no doubt, but I feel very strongly about it. But I also am you know, not arrogant to think that this is the last word on this. I think this is kind of throwing out a trial balloon, trying to see, is it a feasible possibility? Is it not a feasible possibility? You know, And the problem also for me, and I'm sure for a lot of you who are listening, is that they're competing sensibilities, right? On the one hand, you want this, you know, this mother who is having difficulty conceiving a child not to have to be burdened with another layer of complexity. Oh, because I had to engage a surrogate mom, now I'm losing half of my motherhood, right? So that's a sensitivity that I'm very open to and aware of, you know. This is a, a woman or a couple or a family that struggled with, you know, having a child, and it turns out that the only solution is surrogacy, and yet we're telling them, well, in that case, you're only half a mom. But I also think that there's another competing sensibility, which is the surrogate mom. In cases where the surrogate mom would be interested in motherhood. And then, like I said, the last thing is the integrity. How do I find balance between sensitivity to the emotional impact of halakha with integrity? At this point, clearly up until yesterday, so to speak, uh, halakha very emphatically attributed motherhood to the gestation mother. So to just come along one day and flip the coin and say, you know what, we'll change it. Now it's the ovum uh, mother. Uh, to me, that lacks integrity. We can't just kind of flip on a dime because that's what's better for the community. If we're going to do that, if we're going to go there, it needs to be done with integrity. And for the moment, 
for the moment, perhaps I'm uh, articulating a shortcoming on my part, for the moment, it is hard for me to see how we can just flip. And in the case of an egg donor, we'll argue it's a gestation mom. In the case of surrogacy, it's the ovum mother. Unless we can find arguments in favor of volitional parenting. That's a pretty wild idea. Sort of interesting and creative, but I'm not sure what that does philosophy, philosophically, halakhically, emotionally, and so on and so forth. But at the moment, it seems to me that almost like I'm stuck and unable to ignore the Solomonic outcome that perhaps they're both parents. Yashikoch for the opportunity. Yashikoch for the chance. Thank you, Rabbi Katz. This was, a number of people messaged to me that this was something very different, unique, and, and, and fascinating. Thank you. thank you so much for this. Um, and, um, uh, and thank you all for joining us in the learning. And we'll have the recordings up for those who, who weren't uh, able to be live uh, with us uh, probably later today or tomorrow. Thank you so much. Hello, everybody. Thank you very, very much. Thank you.